Welcome to Oceanside Chat, Light Beyond Generations. This podcast was created to inspire, motivate, and provide insight through industry professionals sharing personal stories, career aspirations, and practical advice. Our team is not afraid to take risks and try new things. This episode was recorded live in the classroom, as evidenced by the echo. We hope to use this as a learning experience to improve our sound quality for future releases. Our guest is Dr. Paul Robin, the Associate Vice Chancellor for Innovation and Commercialization at UC San Diego. Working with the Vice Chancellor for Research, Dr. Robin is transforming the functions provided by the Technology Transfer Office, Industry Research Alliances, and Industry Contracting into an integrated organization to include patenting, strategic corporate research partnering, and industry contracts. He oversees the Division of Innovation and Commercialization, which will establish a campus-wide innovation platform to build a systemic and sustainable innovation culture, create a vibrant regional ecosystem, and accelerate the commercialization of UC San Diego inventions. Time to get your feet wet in the business world and join us down by the water as we have an Oceanside chat. Season 3 Premiere, Building an Innovation Ecosystem Welcome to Oceanside Chat, Light Beyond Generations. I'm Helen Wang, the host and the creator of the program. We are recording this episode live in a classroom at the University of California, San Diego. Students in my class, Innovation to Market will participate in today's discussion about building an innovation ecosystem. History shows that college produce entrepreneurs. Every year, Pitchbook ranks global universities based on the number of funders whose companies received the first round of venture funding. From January 2006 to October 2021, Stanford and the University of California, Berkeley, topped the list of undergraduate program last year, and Harvard took third place. Founders from those schools were also behind three of the largest IPOs in the past year. For example, Robinhood, their founder came from Stanford. DoorDash, founders came from Stanford and UC Berkeley. To put things into perspective, UC Berkeley has cumulatively produced more than 44,000 founders, and Stanford has more than 38,000 founders. Among the top universities, UC San Diego, ranked number 28 last year. So today I'm thrilled to speak with Dr. Paul Robin, the Associate Vice Chancellor for Innovation and Commercialization at the University of California, San Diego. Paul, welcome to the show. Thank you. What is non-negotiable in your life? Non-negotiable in my life? I guess you gotta do things for the right reason. You got to do this to improve people's lives at some level. And if you're not doing that, don't do it. And that to me is totally non-negotiable. From across every aspect of what I happen to have the responsibility for here at the university, it's everything from negotiating legal agreements to help students do all sorts of stuff, right? At the heart of all that, you have to be doing this for the right reasons. And the right reasons is that you want to improve people's lives. And if that's not the case, I'm not going to help. Do you always know the right reasons when you were young or does that acquire experience and knowledge and wisdom when you just try more things and fail and learn? I think when you're younger, you think you know everything. 
It doesn't mean that you're not driven by the right stuff though, right? I think you can always be driven by the need to do things the right way, but you're not going to know everything at the time. Yeah, so it's an evolution. It's a process. It's, a, it's an evolution. Also, the society environment changes too, right? So what's yeah. right in the past may not be right in today's society or future. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, you guys are all young. But then that's part of entrepreneurship as well, right? Most of entrepreneurship is surrounding yourself with the people that can complement what you can do so that you can move things forward. So I love the analogy that life is like a book and each of us is the author. You have been writing a fulfilling and exciting book. Just to name a few, you earned a PhD in Ireland, studied as a postdoctoral fellow at UC San Diego, founded startup companies, mentored entrepreneurs, and integrated and transformed the innovation and commercialization office at UC San Diego while serving on Ireland's innovation task force. In other words, you have experiences and insights from industry to academia to government in the domain of innovation. That's quite unique and pretty cool and also unconventional journey. So if you were to pick a name for your book, what it would be? When I grow up, I think all that reflects is that I haven't figured out what I want to be when I grow up. Right. No, but I mean, what I really like about it is the, I love innovation because innovation is just people who are driven to make a difference. But when looking at it from all these various perspectives, government, academia, private sector, and so on, you just learn so much. You learn, the first thing you learn is that you know less and less as you get older, but you're just learning all the time. So that's, that's why I love going from one sector to another, to another. If you could actually write a book that was guaranteed to be a bestseller, what would you write? Well, if I knew that, I would have done it years ago and I'd have retired, wouldn't I? <laughs> <laughs> this is like saying, I have a crystal ball, right? This is how you retire. No, I have no idea. I mean, it would have to be stories just about the incredible stuff, the flashes of brilliance that you see, right? Would I that mean, be around the innovation or something else? Or Yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I know, right? I can't write about things that I don't know. So yeah, it would have to be something about the people that I have met and the things that they have done. As the Associate Vice Chancellor for Innovation and Commercialization at University of California, San Diego, what matters most to you? Could you describe your job in three to five words? Helping people improve people's lives. And that's what innovation is. Mm, wonderful. You just answered my question. I was about to ask, what is innovation? <laughs> is it a noun or verb? Do you think it's an attitude or mindset or skill? How would you help the younger generation to navigate when it comes to innovation? It's a very widely popular used word. It's a very overused word. Most people these days, when you say innovation, they like glaze over news interest kind of stuff, right? We have overused it. To me, I'm looking for a different word, but I haven't found one yet that adequately describes what we're trying to express with that. Innovation is a mindset. That's what innovation is, right? It's a mindset. And that mindset is, what can I do? How do I move things forward? How do I find the right people to surround myself with to be able to do that? It's about being comfortable with risk and uncertainty. It's moving out of your comfort zone, being comfortable, not understanding what's going on. I'm supposed to be shepherding so much of the research that goes on on this campus towards a sort of an innovative outcome. I don't understand most of the research, right? And that's wonderful. I just love that kind of stuff. And that's the entrepreneurial mindset. It's get out of your comfort zone, do something that scares you, take that risk. But at the back of it all, you're trying to move something forward. So why does innovation matters to students? Because they have all the good ideas. 
<laughs> I love that answer. Why is the innovation matters to university? That's what we do, right? That's what we do. Think about what a university produces. It produces talent and produces technologies, or broader than technologies, ideas. Let's put it that way. So we have talent and ideas. That's all the university does, right? Our core function is education and research, and that is talent and ideas. Why would we produce ideas and talent if they weren't going to go out there and make a difference? That should be a waste of time. We need to be producing the innovation workforce of the future. What does that mean? That means those capable, creative, collaborative, risk-taking people that are going to change the world. And if that isn't what a university does, then who's going to do it, right? So that's why it's important. Why is innovation important for community? Because look at how our society has changed over the past 20 years. That is innovation. And you guys wouldn't believe what it was like when I was growing up, you know, the lack of stuff. We didn't even have cell phones. I mean, the first time that I saw a cell phone, and then it could link to this thing that started with WWW, right? I mean, wow. It changes the world. And it doesn't always change it for the better, because technology is neither good nor bad. It's just how we use it, right? Social media is a really good example of that. Some uses are really good. Some uses are really, really bad. But that is the journey of innovation. And if we don't get out there and at least create the technologies and then hope that society is able to catch up with that and find uses while well, getting rid of the bad uses, if you like, then we're never going to move forward. And that's good for all of us, right? UC San Diego, we talk about idea to impact. Could you give us an example or a story that really demonstrates that? Yeah, so Josh is a guy over in the DIB, which is the innovation building, right? He went down to Mexico. And he visited one of these orthopedic centers and he saw that people could not afford to get prosthetics. There were so many people who needed prosthetics, just could not afford them. There's wonderful things out there. They cost $20,000 and they're great, but nobody can afford them. So he came back and he said, we need to change that. So he built himself a 3D printer and he started printing prosthetics. These are low cost, couple hundred bucks at most prosthetics. He then hooked up with a clinician over in the health system there who was from Ukraine. So they went off to the Ukraine and they brought five of these prosthetics with them and they hooked them up to soldiers who obviously needed them and they had them working within two days. Well, Zelensky found out and he said, you come back and I will help you to set up a manufacturing of these things because five is great, but 500 will be a lot better. And ever since then, he's raising money. He's printing prosthetics over in the center over there. We're really trying to help him to ramp up. I mean, that's impact, right? I love this story because it's not just an innovative idea, but it's impact helping people who otherwise couldn't get the help. There's lots of prosthetics companies out there who are producing things that nobody's ever going to be able to afford to buy. So this guy was driven to do it, but to do it in a different way. And that's why I love that story. He's been on NPR a whole bunch of times. So you probably hear his story every now and then. And you guys can come on over to the innovation building and meet these people and see what they're doing. Oh, the invitation is out there. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Wonderful. How do you define innovation ecosystem? Yeah, that's a really hard one. I mean, it is a collaboration of people moving things forward. What does that mean? Can mean a million different things, right? At the back of an ecosystem is, or at the heart, I guess, of an ecosystem is the fact that none of us can do all of this by ourselves. There are so many aspects to moving things forward that you need. If you're just starting a company, right, you need the finance people, the people who can raise the money, the people who can do the administrative stuff, the people that are the technologists, the people that can go out and market. That's just a very simple example of the fact that if any of you think you can do this all by yourself, you're going to fail. You need to build this community of people around you, even for a single company. 
But to do that on a regional level is another step up again. If you look at San Diego, we're extremely entrepreneurial. We have loads of startup companies, but we really don't have that many large companies. And until we get very large, we're beginning to, I mean, Google, Amazon, they're all coming down now, which is fantastic. And we have Illumina and Qualcomm and others, but we need more sort of large companies in the ecosystem, which help the churn of people and entrepreneurs through the system. And that's something that we don't have as much as we would like. We need more venture capital down here and so on. So these are all the elements you need on a regional level to be able to really move an ecosystem from the level we're at now to say the Bay Area. So where we're doing 10 billion in venture capital, they're doing 50 and 60 billion. And that's because of the ecosystem that they have, right? And it's really just this collaboration of people and movement of people and funding and ideas. That's really what an ecosystem is. Yeah, so definitely people first. But if you would break down to some major components of the ecosystem, you just mentioned about people. You also mentioned about the capital funding, right? What else do you think is important? Mobility. Mobility is incredibly important. It's mobility of people. You go up to the Bay Area quite often, you get an Uber. The person driving the Uber is just between companies, right? That's the next level, if you like, of entrepreneurship in an ecosystem. So you need this mobility of people, people who are willing to take risk and move from one thing to another. You need the mobility of capital. That's incredibly important. You also need just infrastructure. So we need space. Right now we have about 3 million square feet of lab space, wet lab space under construction in San Diego, which it's about time, frankly, because we just didn't have enough of that. You need space at all sorts of different levels, right? If you're starting a company, you need your first little piece of space, which might be a few desks. You then need a couple of thousand square feet. Then you need 10, 20,000, and then you need your own building, right? It's this graduation of space. I was just over in the Netherlands with the mayor doing one of these treatments and things. And that was one of the pieces that was identified as being key in order to facilitate this kind of highly mobile ecosystem. Yeah. So you need infrastructure that create a collaborative, creative, innovative environment. What about culture? Well, the culture is kind of what I alluded to, you know, I hate talking about the Bay Area because frankly, I think we're better in certainly nicer weather, but the culture is there and the culture is around mobility. It's around what's the next thing? What can I do next? It's really about this mobility of thought, mobility of people. That's yeah. what we're trying to create across UC San Diego. The chancellor said that every single one of the 43,000 students on this campus needs to have the opportunity at least to experience entrepreneurship in some way or another, just like you guys are here today, right? That's what will create the culture. Now, not everybody in the world is going to be an entrepreneur. And, you know, that different people are going to express that differently too. Some will be an entrepreneur in Pfizer or GE. Some will start their own companies. Some will go down to City Hall and change how they work in entrepreneurial and innovative ways. But at least everybody on the campus needs to be exposed to it in some way or another. And that's what will drive an entrepreneurial culture. Very interesting. So how would you view the university within the community what role do we play oh if we weren't here the community wouldn't be here i mean bottom line really if you look now where is the innovation ecosystem here in san diego it's in large part within five six miles of this university and why is that because the talent is here because you guys are here right you guys are the ones who are going to go off and feed the system in terms of bringing new ideas and so on to the whole system and the companies know that and that's why they locate them so close to here. They like to be beside the professors. They like to be beside the capabilities that we have and, and so on. 
The university has absolutely driven this, and I don't think anybody would disagree with that. I don't think our innovation sectors would look like they do if it wasn't for the university. Yeah, so according to what you described, the successful examples, it feels like university is a source of innovation. The source of innovation, meaning with the people and the ideas, yes. So you took over this position in 2015. Yep. What is the evolution that you have seen since then? So the first day that I came to the campus, the chancellor brought me into his office and he said, so this is what I want. I want you to get out of the way. <laughs> it's kind of interesting when your boss on the first day says, get out of the way. So what he really meant by that was the university needs to make it as easy as possible for entrepreneurs and innovators to take ideas into the private sector or the public sector, wherever you want to bring them and have the impact that you're looking for. Historically, large universities 10, 20 years ago were kind of hard to deal with if you were a company or out in industry. So he said, right, you need to change that. So we've done a lot of things and I can get into details on that, but I think we're in the right direction. We're certainly not there yet, but we've doubled the number of startups that come off campus in the last five years. We've doubled the number of licenses and the licenses just transferring technology into the private sector, right? We've doubled the amount of money that we get from industry to do research now. It's about 250 million a year or something like that. So these are just indicators that at least we've managed. We're on the right road in terms of breaking down all barriers, making it completely fluid between us and all of the community around us so that this talent and ideas can get out there and society will feel the impact. Because if you think about it at the end of the day, we spend about $1.6 billion a year on research at this campus. Most of that is your money, right? Because it comes from the federal government, which is taxes. It's the public's money. So we need to ensure that that money then comes back in terms of benefit to society. So that's a major part of the change over the last five years. But the other side, which we're only really building up now, is the entrepreneurship infrastructure for undergraduates to make sure that, as I said previously, every single undergraduate has an opportunity to be an entrepreneur, however they want to be an entrepreneur. And that piece is it's on its way. I'm not happy with it yet. Ask me in five years, and I hope that we will have one of the most entrepreneurial cultures in the country, but we're getting there. I share with my students the Global Startup Ecosystem Report published annually by Startup Genome, the world-leading policy advisory and the research organization dedicated to the success of startup ecosystem across 280 cities around the globe. Last year's report showed that the same five ecosystems at the top of the ranking remain the same. They are number one Silicon Valley, New York City and London are tied for the second place, Boston number four, and Beijing number five. Among the world's top cities, San Diego, where we located, jumped eight ranks from the year 2020 to become a number 13 in 2021. In your opinion, what's the best setting for an innovative environment? A diverse one, diverse. you know, literally a diverse one, where you have many different people all in the same space, whatever space, if you want to call it a building or whatever kind of stuff, meeting each other, just bumping into each other. And the business that we're in of sort of innovation, so much of what happens is just serendipitous. It's just serendipity. It's just bumping into people in the corridor or whatever. I'd far rather have that kind of an environment. And plus, I'm really bad at motivating myself sitting at home by myself anyway. So no, I'd rather be in the office. I mean, that's, that's really what, what innovation is all about. It feels like a metaverse might be a perfect place that you can avoid all the traffic, right? Uh -huh. But then still meeting with people, a lot of collaboration. What's your thoughts about that? 
I think the metaverse has its place. That's a very interesting question, by the way. You know, I think the metaverse has its place and I think it's going to have a bigger and bigger and bigger place as time goes on and as companies figure out how to use it appropriately. Like any other technology though, it's not going to supplant any other technology in some ways, right? There is always going to be a place for personal physical interaction. 80% of how we communicate is not what we say. It's whether you're leaning forward or backwards, whether you're scratching your ear or looking at the ceiling, whatever. Most communication is actually nonverbal, so there will always be a place for that. Zoom has enabled us to do things which are fantastic over the past couple of years, so that has a place. The metaverse gives you a much more interactive environment at a distance. It's not anywhere close to there yet, though. I mean, I, for those of you who spend a lot of time in the metaverse, first of all, you don't have any legs, right? So that's kind of weird to start with, but the technology just isn't at that point yet, but it's going to get there. And we do more and more of our meetings in the metaverse. So like the building I described, we have a digital twin of that. We meet people from all over the world on the fourth floor, you know, in the digital twin in the metaverse, and it has its place. There is actually a sense of community when you're in there, but will it supplant the need for us to meet physically? No, but some of the applications for the metaverse are amazing. Can you give us an example of the application? <laughs> Well, just looking at the campus, there are training surgeons in the metaverse and have shown that it's more effective and quicker to train surgeons in VR than it is in using the mannequins or the way that surgeons used to learn. They are developing therapeutics in the metaverse. So you can have somebody in Paris, Tokyo, and San Diego all standing in the same room around the same protein, putting, fitting small molecules into it and developing therapeutics. And there's a student, an undergrad, who actually started a company around that and has lots of contracts with people like Pfizer, right? So it's not dummy stuff. There's archaeologists that are using the metaverse. It just goes on and on. I think as people learn how to use it, I think you're just going to find more applications. And maybe that's our job is to help our student population become comfortable with that so that they are the ones with the ideas. They're going to figure out how to use it. When you were just talking about it, I thought it was just fascinating that how many dimensions that we're exploring these days. First of all, we have this physical world, right? And then you mentioned Zoom, we have this virtual world. And metaverse is another dimension. We have one of the guest speakers coming to talk about the future of space. Yeah, so we have Axiom is this company that's doing these, the space station, right? The applications that are going to be in space, it brings a whole new dimension to the development of technologies across all sorts of different sectors. I did again mention Katrina, who's thrown therapeutics up into space to see how they behave in a zero-G environment, which actually tells us a lot of things about cancer, about aging, about all sorts of other stuff, right? We did a webinar there a while back of what has space done for me lately. It is incredible the number of things we use on a day-to-day basis that were developed initially in space. So that's another one of these fears, I guess, that we need to keep an eye on, right? Yeah, definitely. More frontiers for innovation as well. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. As the Associate Vice Chancellor for Innovation Commercialization at the UC San Diego, how would you measure performance and success? Well, how I would measure it and how my boss would measure it, right? Lots of different ways to measure things. Everything you do, you measure at different levels. There are these sort of pedantic, these are the measures of commercial success for a university. So that's all measured in the terms of the number of inventions and licenses and startup companies and all that kind of stuff. On another level is how many people, people's lives do we touch, right? So how many students have gotten benefit from the types of things that we do? That to me is actually more important. And actually that's the thing that's the most important to the chancellor as well. He wants every one of our 43,000 students to have the opportunity to experience entrepreneurship as I defined it. 
not necessarily starting a company, but entrepreneurship, right? So that to me is the most important. But then on a long-term thing, how do you measure success? It's not rankings. I mean, lots of people are concerned with rankings. I'm not concerned with rankings. It's really what difference did we make? You know, what did our students and our faculty go on to do? And what difference did we make? And did we have any part in helping to shape that person or that individual to allow them to go off and do that? That at the end of it is what's really important, right? Mm -hmm. How many patients were cured by things? How many high paying jobs were created in San Diego? What impact did we make on homelessness or immigration? But, you know, did we have some small part to play in making the world a better place? Just like the stories that you shared earlier, right? The entrepreneurship from UC San Diego made real impact. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. Speaking of the region, what are the top strengths and unique feature of the San Diego region? You can measure that in so many different ways, but ultimately we're one of the most entrepreneurial regions in the world by all sorts of different ways of looking at it. People translate their ideas to real impact through startup creation in this region more than in just about any other region on a global level. What we do here, probably better than any region in the country, actually, we're not stuck in any one lane. So we are not the best at innovating in a particular technology. If you think about Silicon Valley, you can think about what they do. You think about Boston, you know what they do. San Diego is really, really good at is innovating in the space between existing technologies and around the edges of technologies. So we're driving digital health, for example. That's data and it exists somewhere between engineering and health sciences. We're really good at them. We're creating new sectors and new disruptive technologies and so on. What I like to say is to investors, if you want to invest in today's technologies, go to Silicon Valley. Have a nice day. If you want to invest in tomorrow's technologies, come here because San Diego is creating the technologies that haven't even been invented yet. I think that's really our strength. The other thing about San Diego is it's the most connected area I've ever been in. Ireland, which is where I come from, is about the same size as San Diego. And they say, well, how is San Diego so successful? And my answer is everybody talks to everybody. You will never knock on a door in San Diego and not be let in. People pay back, they pay forward, they pay every which way. It's a really, really good place to be. All the way from the top CEOs of the biggest companies here in San Diego have this sense of responsibility. People help them to get to where they are and they do pay that back. So it's a great, great place to be. What are the top challenges within the region? We don't have enough big companies. We have big companies, certainly. I mean, we are Qualcomm, Illumina, Thermo, these kinds of companies, Viasat, but we don't have enough of them. One of the big advantages of the Bay Area, for example, it has Google and Amazon and Facebook and all these places, right? And the churn and the mobility of people, they're going from one job to another. And as they're driving from one company to another, they start a startup, right? There's this massive mobility there that is only made possible by the fact that there is a huge employment base in the big companies. So that's something that we certainly is a challenge for us. We just don't have enough of them. Now, Google and Amazon and these guys are coming down now, and I hope they'll increase their footprint. I was just on a trade mission over in Europe, and there's a lot of companies looking at us now because we're getting more visibility as a region, and I hope some of those companies will come. There's a company called ASML. It's in the Netherlands. It is the company that makes all of the machines that make chips. There's one company in the world that makes these machines, that makes chips, because each of these machines costs about a billion dollars, right? Absolutely mind-blowing stuff. And they have just opened a facility here in San Diego and are going to hopefully employ thousands and thousands of people. That's the kind of stuff that we need more of. That is a bit of a challenge for us here in San Diego Mm -hmm. right now. But why do you think this challenge exists? I think it's because of the way that San Diego grew up. 
the tech industry here came from Irwin Jacobs, a UCSD professor, right? Started Linkabit, went on to be Qualcomm. And as that company grew and changed and morphed and so on, people came out of it and they started their own companies and they became investors and so on. And the whole tech industry grew up. The same can be said for the life science industry. You know, it came from Hybertech, was bought by Lilly and a whole bunch of people left and they all started their own companies. I think the nature of how the region grew up has meant that we are very good entrepreneurs and we are very good at starting companies, but we're not very good at growing companies because we never learned that in the early days, right? And a lot of our companies, as they became successful, got acquired and taken to other parts of the country, New York or the Bay Area or whatever. We're beginning to get there now, but it just wasn't the way that we started. Mm. Interesting. So in your opinion, what are the biggest opportunities in the region on the horizon? Well, again, I think it's to create the sectors and technologies of tomorrow. Let's just take one, healthcare, right? Healthcare is changing incredibly and it needs to because it's going to go broke if it doesn't. And the pandemic actually has accelerated that change. Healthcare is not about going to a hospital, seeing a doctor or getting fixed with whatever kind of thing, unless you need surgery or something. It's going to be an entirely different proposition, you know, 10, 20 years from now kind of stuff. And San Diego is better positioned than any other part of the country to actually drive that. When you take the data and the analytics and the AI components, and then you look at wearable sensors and IoT and all these other things, we are actually at the forefront of developing a lot of the sort of building blocks of that new industry. And the same can be said for 6G, which we're developing, for transportation, for blue tech and a whole bunch of other areas kind of thing. So you have a lot of experience advising government mm. when it comes to innovation. Could you describe in your perspective, what role does government play? And what's the relationship in terms of the innovation ecosystem between university, industry, and the government, and maybe even more sector that we should pay attention to? Yeah, no, that's a good question as well. First of all, we're all needed. One is not more or less important than the other, because without all three, you don't get anywhere. You know, universities or academia, they're sort of the beginning of the cycle, right? This is where we develop creative contributing people. It's where we do research, which is the starting point for new technologies. So that's our piece, right? You need the private sector then to take those technologies and people and develop them into products, services, things that we all use in our daily lives. But technology doesn't exist in a vacuum, right? It's neither good nor bad. It's what we do with it that's good or bad. And what determines what we do with it in large part is policy. And that's where the government comes in, right? You need government to stay up with technology so that when technology hits the street, we already have policies in place that enable the development and the adoption of that technology. If that doesn't happen, it slows everything down. An example, right? Electric cars. We had electric cars. They're all wonderful. Did we have charging stations? No, right? We didn't have enough charging stations. That's where government needs to be on the forefront. They need to be included much earlier in the whole technology development process so that when you know, electric cars hit the streets, literally, that we have the charging infrastructure. And you can pick so many more examples of that. Right now, policy tends to be way behind technology development. Someday we'll get that right, and you will actually see a massive acceleration of how this whole process works kind of stuff. But that's where government really needs to come in. They also need to be permissive in allowing this to happen. If they're overbearing and things are too hard to do, that slows things down as well. But it's really around policy development, educating society. Yeah, it's really allowing the whole system to exist in the right context. In your presentation earlier, you mentioned from invention to license to startup. Could you explain how does that work? Yeah. 
Well, this is an interesting question because it doesn't apply to a lot of the people in the room, right? And I'll tell you why in a second. So in our research portfolio, which as I said, is about $1.6 billion. So it is a large portfolio, right? People invent things and then they tell the university. Professor Ryan might invent something, right? She comes to my office and she says, I have an invention. And then we will protect it. Maybe we might patent it or whatever. And then we'll find people who can develop it beyond what the university is capable of doing into a product. And if we find that company, then we will give the technology to them through a license. That's all the license is. It just allows somebody to use the technology and they will develop the product, hopefully, and then it, it'll impact everybody. So that's the sort of the simple way of, of describing the process. The other way you can do that, though, is you can actually start a company and we do that. So we do about 40 companies a year. So when we get the invention, we start a company, we put a management team in place, and then we license the technology into that company. We help them to find investment and away they go. The reason why the license thing doesn't apply to the students in the room, which is all of you, I guess, is we don't own your intellectual property unless you go into a lab to develop it there. If you do that, that's fine. We'll license. But for the most part, we don't own your intellectual property. But what we do do is we help you start companies and put management teams around it and find investment and all the other stuff anyway. That's fantastic. Because one of the objectives for today's conversation that I hope to achieve is getting both the inside perspective. Right, like from somebody like Paul, and as well share some of the outside perspective and I'll get Paul's reaction for the later part of the discussion. Now I'm going to get some outside perspective. So the Global Startup Ecosystem Report measures six success factors. Let me share some information from the report about San Diego. So the first one, the report highlighted an average of 266 days of sunshine per year in San Diego. What's your reaction to that? Does sunshine help innovation? Is sunshine part of the ecosystem? Was that a question from here? That's a cool question. Whoever asked that, that's a good question. Sunshine is both good and bad. Sunshine is lovely because I like to open my curtains every morning and see it, right? So it's a great thing to have a nice climate. Fantastic. Unfortunately, though, what it has done outside of San Diego, people look at San Diego as, you know, surfboards and everybody's having a good time stuff. That has been a problem for the region. We have to overcome that. We are not just a place to have tequila and surfboards. We are an innovative place. We are a disruptive place. And so there has been this difficulty in overcoming the sort of traditional view of San Diego, if you like. However, can we use the fact that we have good weather? Absolutely. If I'm a CEO starting a new company and I can put it anywhere in the world, well, tell them that there's 260 days of sunshine. That's fine. But it unfortunately has historically actually been an impediment for us in terms of raising visibility and credibility in the innovation world. Another thing that a report highlighted in 2021, as you also mentioned, San Diego County raised a record 9.6 billion in startup investment, which is up 55% from 2020. 2020 number was also a record. So since you became the AVC for innovation and commercialization, do you see a trend of increasing funding for startups in this region and why? The answer is yes, I have seen that trend. And I thank you for attributing any of that to me. It's not me at all, but I like that. There has been an increasing trend over the last even 30 years. One thing you have to realize though with these trends, it's not just continuously goes up. So I've seen boom, bust, boom, bust. This is what happens. In the 80s, there was a bust. In 2002, there was a bust. Like the stock market, right? The stock market does exactly the same thing, and it's probably for the same reasons. But overall, has the trend gone up? Yeah, absolutely. And in the last five years, I've seen it go up more dramatically than ever before. We hardly ever broke a billion dollars here up until about five, six years ago. And now we're close to doing 10. 
We're not going to do close to that this year. The markets just don't support that. If we do five or six, we'll all be very happy here. But that's just the nature of the market. But yes, I have seen it go up. And even for the university, the university itself has doubled the number of startups that it does. I don't know what the factor is in terms of what they've raised in capital investment, but that's trending upwards as well. So, yeah. So what's driving the growth? What's driving the growth? I think we're getting more recognition, actually, because most of that money comes from somewhere else. That's another challenge we face as a community. We don't have enough homegrown investment houses here. So most of that money is actually coming from somewhere else, New York, San Francisco, and so on. And I think that's been driven by an increased recognition nationally and globally that this is a place to pay attention to. And that is because of the hard work of a lot of people. That's a regional effort that doesn't happen, you know, on Tuesday, right? This takes years of people working really hard, sort of raising visibility across the globe kind of stuff. But I think finally we're getting the recognition we deserve, frankly. So you mentioned about in the last five years, I'm curious, do you think pandemic play a role? Yes, absolutely it did. When I was in this business of raising money, investors were very kind of parochial, right? They wouldn't invest more than five miles from their office kind of thing particularly when you went up to Sand Hill Road and up into Silicon Valley and tried to get money out of them. That isn't the case anymore. And I think that trend was accelerated by COVID. So I guess there are silver linings to very bad things, right? By people getting more and more used to doing things remotely and online and by Zoom and so on, I think it's loosened it up a lot. And I mean, this is conjecture, maybe I have no data to back it, but a lot of people would agree when I have these conversations. But I think that it has helped the money to flow basically to this area. I never got big deals for the university five years ago from New York. Mm. Now we have big deals from New York at the university, right? So, and that happened over the course of the pandemic. So. Wow, lots of opportunities. That's great. The report also credited the success of San Diego region to strong life sciences. And it further pointed out that San Diego is in the top 12 markets in the U.S. for life sciences. And I know you are one of the leaders in that area. Could you tell us more about it? Well, San Diego is extremely strong in life sciences because that's its history, right? That's what we were born doing was life sciences. The investment has gone up. The companies that are coming out are really good. They're making products. Life sciences is about clinical development to a large extent, whether you're doing diagnostics, devices, or therapeutics. We can see just by the number of trials that are getting done and approved and so on that we are now getting more and more products on the market than just about any region. I would say number 12 is underselling us, actually. Mm. I mean, I'd say we're probably three, four, five, somewhere in there. But this is the problem with rankings as well. This is my one bugbear, right? Rankings are, God, it depends on what, they, what they're measuring. You know, I can find a ranking out there to tell us anything, right? But I think the reality on the ground is that we're doing more companies who are raising more money, who are developing, which is the important piece, solutions for our patients at, at a faster rate now than we ever did before. What do you think about the clean tech sector in San Diego? The report mentioned that sector has an economic impact of 8.2 billion. Yeah, clean tech San Diego was only started 11 or 12 years ago. And then it was a sort of an aspiration to be a center of clean tech. And now you have those statistics. And I think it's great. And, and it's true. I work a lot with the clean tech sector. One of the things that I like about it, from the fact that it, it's driving a lot of jobs and so on in the region, it is about sustainability. You know, it's developing energy solutions and other solutions which are directly relevant to climate change and all the things we need to be doing. So it's not just bringing good jobs to the region, it's solving big problems for us, which is great. In your opinion, what are the top reasons to move a startup to San Diego? 
the environment that you find yourself in, the other people that are doing this. Now we also can back that up with the funding that you'd be able to raise here. Before that was a difficult argument to make because if you're a tech company, really it was hard to make the argument that you shouldn't be in Silicon Valley. That's not true anymore, happily for us. But it's really the environment you find yourself in. The talent that is coming out of the universities, that's you guys, is a huge factor. And that's why people like Google and Amazon are coming down. But it's also why I get people calling up from all over the world asking exactly that question, right? I would say that you have one of the most entrepreneurial, connected, collaborative environments that you'll find anywhere. You'll be able to access the talent that you're going to need to be able to grow your companies here, and you will be able to access other stuff I and mean, the capabilities of the university, right? We have a lot of equipment here that a startup couldn't buy ever. If it's a $10 million piece of equipment, there's no way they're going to be able to afford it, but you can access it here, that kind of stuff, right? So you have a lot of the support that you need basically to grow your company, I think. To share with everyone what the report actually mentioned, two top reasons. Huh? <laughs> this is what I find so interesting about inside perspective, outside perspective. So the first one is lower cost of living. Of course, everything is relative, right? It's talking about a 10% lower than LA, 18% lower than San Francisco. But I think it's also saying is, right, because it's close by LA and San Francisco, so you have access to all the business opportunities. The second reason they mentioned was business-friendly environment. For example, talk about reduced permit processing time, online business portal. Do you feel like the local government is doing enough to support this innovative culture? First of all, just go back to the first point. This isn't a low cost, and it's actually one of the problems we face, because this isn't all about CEOs with CEO salaries. It needs people across the entire employment chain to be able to keep this going, you know, and it actually is a problem. Housing and the cost of housing and so on is an issue here. Your second question, I don't think the mayor would ever say that he's doing enough, right? And that's having spent the last week with him on a bus. So what I would say is that the government here is really responsive. It's really open. It's really communicative. And it is working very closely with the innovation community here, including the universities, to do what they can to make this stuff happen. If any of us basically said, yes, we're doing the perfect job and there's nothing left to do, we should be fired, right? <laughs> And I think the city would say the same thing. There's still a lot to do, but they're not in denial or they're not avoiding the innovation community or any of that. They really are working very closely with them to figure out what that's all about. I mean, we had a long discussion with the developers because space is important, right? You need space to accommodate companies at all sizes of growth. And the mayor was really open to a lot of the ideas that, that there was there to really develop that kind of thing. So these are the kinds of things that I think local government is good at. I mean, Carlsbad has an appointed a chief innovation officer, and you could see the mayor go on. If any city government is going to be supporting the innovative ecosystem, it has itself to be innovative as well. And there is a huge recognition of that as well. And I think that they're doing all the right things to get there. Okay, back to the report in terms of time to exit for startup. For San Diego, time to exit is 10.1 years compared to 7.6 years in Silicon Valley and 9.4 years globally. What are your thoughts about that? You can't compare apples and oranges. We are a life science hub, right? The amount of money and the amount of time that it takes to go from an idea to a therapeutic is a lot, right? Frankly, if you're looking at software, you can go from idea to market in two years or even less, right? So. That kind of comparison to me makes absolutely no sense because it's been done in a vacuum. What are the types of technologies that are being developed in Silicon Valley or Boston or anywhere else? That's going to, in large part, impact the, the time to exit. So I'm not saying the comparison was good, bad, or otherwise. I just think it's a meaningless comparison because the types of technologies that are being developed are very different. 
Yeah, it's an outcome without context, right? That's yeah, that's yeah. basically what I think that is. Yeah, very interesting. I'm going to start picking some student questions. Okay. So here comes one question. What suggestion do you have for hard science majors to venture into more creative entrepreneurial space? Since here is a general perception that the two are mutually exclusive. So what you're saying is that science and this kind of innovative thing are mutually exclusive. Hmm. I'm also um, curious about where that perception comes from. So Paul, would you expand from your perspective, what is the relationship between science and innovation? Yeah, I'm surprised by the question in some ways because science is the first step in some ways, right? Science leads to invention. Now, invention is just invention. It's not innovation. What's the difference? Invention means I've invented something, yay. But is it useful? I mean, can somebody actually turn it into something that's going to have the impact you're looking for? That's the innovation piece, right? It's turning this invention that you created into impact. So that's going from invention to innovation. Science generates inventions. We get about four or 500 inventions disclosed to the university from professors every year. And then it's our job to sort of say, okay, well, this could be innovative or not. And innovative meaning, can you then turn that into something that has impact? So it's a continuum. It's not exclusive, one being exclusive of the other. One can't live without the other. If you don't have the invention in the first place or the idea in the first place, then how are you going to have any impact, right? If all you have is the idea and, you know, you don't turn that into impact, well, that's fine, but we're not talking about innovation. So it's a continuum to me where they're absolutely dependent upon one another as opposed to being exclusive of one another. Yeah, I think what you just described is another way to look at the process for innovation or the ecosystem for innovation. There's a source of innovation all the way to a real impact to the world, right? And there's a many steps in between. But sometimes that you might see some good ideas, the impact already happened. But if you're really looking back to the source of the innovation, oftentimes science is the foundation for that. I will also say that science doesn't have to be. The arts, the humanities, the social sciences, theater, dance, all can have impact. Impact can be so many different things. And it's something that I try very, very hard to make sure that people leave with that impression as well. And I don't know where you guys sit in all of this continuum, but we need everybody. The difference between having four engineers, I'm sure there's engineers here, right? So no offense on this one, but four engineers around the table are going to come up with one answer. If you throw in a historian or an economist or somebody into that table, you're going to get a different answer. I don't know which one is better, but you need that diversity because that's how you get true disruption. So just want to make the point that STEM is extremely important, but so is everything else. That actually perfectly leads to the next question asked by a student. How do you form a great team? How do you know they are the right people to work together with? Yeah, that's a good question. So some of the programs that we run over at what we call The Basement, I don't know if you guys have heard of this, but The Basement is actually the main undergraduate entrepreneurship program on campus, and it runs now out of the innovation building that I described. The programs that we run there actually have workshops and seminars where people from the outside come in who are experts in leadership and team building and describe the process that you go through to build a team that works well together, that is impactful, that has the outcomes that you want and so on. So I'm not going to go into all that, but there are plenty of programs that will allow you to figure that out. To answer it another way, I've started a bunch of companies and the ones that failed usually failed because the team didn't get on. The ones that, that succeeded, succeeded because the people got on together. They understood the strengths of each individual, what they brought to the team. They also understood what they didn't bring to the team and what other people did. And this is very important to recognize. You only bring one thing, somebody else brings another thing, and it's that sort of combination. And you'll see that in San Diego as well. There are teams of people who start 
company after company after company after company. And every time that they start the next company, the investors flock to them and give them hundreds of millions of dollars to do this because they know it doesn't matter what the technology is, that team is going to succeed. So this whole idea of creating the right team is possibly the most important thing. And for students, you won't have all the expertise. I don't have all the expertise. Nobody does. You won't even necessarily have access to it right now because you're going to need people who are entrepreneurs, who are finance people and all that kind of stuff. That's part of the process that we have at the university is to help you through as far as you can, but then to bring people from the community to you so that you can build a team ultimately that you're going to need to be successful. Next question is, how can aspiring entrepreneurs best handle negative consequences due to taking high risks? I'm trying to figure out how to answer that one. I will tell you that you will fail, right? You will fail. And if you can't deal with it, don't do it. <laughs> this is the process, though, of learning to be an entrepreneur. If you don't fail, you're not trying hard enough. That's really the bottom line. I mean, this is what entrepreneurship is all about. It's about taking risk. You've got to be able to handle the fact that you will fail. When I was raising money for my companies, one of the first questions that the venture guys would always ask me was, what's your last failure? And if you went and said to them, oh, I never failed, I'm brilliant. That's it. You see them just close their notebooks and glaze over for the rest of the presentation. You learn from failure more than you do from success. Right? So that's how you should look at failure. Failure is going to teach you more and you're going to be better for it when you come out the back end of that, if you are open-minded enough to learn from that failure. So failure isn't bad. Failure is only bad if you keep making the same mistake over and over and you don't learn from it, right? Failure is something you should actually welcome because you're going to learn an awful lot more from it. I can look back through, I did three companies in a row. My God, the first two were terrible. They were awful, but I learned so much from those first two failures. By the time you get to the third one, then things are great. So don't look at failure as something bad. Failure is something you should welcome in because there's no better way to learn, basically. Do you think there is a lot of entrepreneur today, in your opinion? Do we need more? I think we need to think about entrepreneurship differently. I don't think that we will ever have enough. And I have a sense that that person may be looking at entrepreneur in the traditional definition of the word entrepreneur as somebody goes off and starts a company. Do we need more of them? Yes, I think we need more of the sort of traditional entrepreneurs. But what I really think we need to be doing is looking at entrepreneurship differently. And that's why I start at the very beginning of this of saying, we view entrepreneurship as people who want to make a difference. You don't have to start a company to make a difference, right? But if you are willing to get out of your comfort zone, if you're willing to take a risk, if you're willing to be creative, if you're willing to do all of these things, then you're an entrepreneur. And that's really how we have to view entrepreneurship. It's a much broader activity. It's people who have ideas that may be useful to people, that they want them to get them out and have that impact that they want. So I don't know if that's really answering the question, do we need more? I think the corollary of that is, well, if we didn't have this, then all of these ideas would never go anywhere. You guys have all of great ideas, I'm sure, right? Being an entrepreneur just means taking that somewhere and having the impact. The other piece to it is it needs to be more diverse. For example, the patents that are submitted to the patent office, only 15% of those patents are women founders. Only 3% of African-American are black founders. How can we possibly continue to be competitive the way the global economy is going, leaving out 60% of the population, all who have good ideas, right? So in terms of more, yes, I would say more. We need more people who don't have the access right now 
because that's what's going to keep us competitive. And this isn't even from an altruistic, we need to bring all of society along, which we do. This is from a purely sort of economic perspective. There is no way this country is going to continue to enjoy the preeminence that it has up to now if we don't include those sections of our population that have been excluded today. I would like to offer in perspective about entrepreneurship. That's a skill required to solve problems. Hmm. Problem is part of our life, right? So there's no shortage of problems. When you look at the progression of society and humanity, there's different problems. Do you think there is enough solution for problems that occur in our society? We just need to acquire that mindset and skill, keep solving problems. So this is why, regardless whether you're building a company, you're building a venture, you're building an idea, aiming for an impact, I think that's the skill that is essential to solving problems. That's entrepreneurship right there. Yeah. I mean, all we can do as a university is create the environment around people to allow them to flourish. That's mm -hmm. kind of this idea of engineered serendipity, right? You create this environment and put the right people in a room and the magic happens. You can't drive ideas. You can't drive solutions, but you can create the environment to allow people with the ideas, bring them forward. We also have a question related to funding. So you mentioned earlier, San Diego is third highest city in terms of money raised in venture capitalists. So the question is how important being a top city to raise money versus not on the top list how hard that will be to raise money. Yeah. When you're talking about the sort of the pure entrepreneurship startup stuff, you have to be recognized as being an innovative region or an entrepreneurial region. You have to be on the map or on the radar of the people with the money. If you aren't up there in the top 10 or whatever number you want to pick kind of stuff, you're not going to attract the capital. So it is extremely important actually to be recognized nationally as a very innovative or an entrepreneurial place, just so that the investors pay attention. And one of the positive outcomes, if it's possible from a pandemic, is that geography isn't as important as it used to be. And investors 10 years ago only invested in the Bay Area for the most part. That seems to have changed. And with all of us on Zoom and weren't able to travel and all that kind of stuff for a couple of years, that happily has changed for a region like us. And there seems to be a lot more money flowing south or from New York or from Boston or wherever than there was before. But we have to keep ourselves up there. We have to make sure our visibility is always high. So that if I'm an investor sitting in New York, I'm thinking, well, where in the country should I be looking at? San Diego has to be on that list. So what do you think is part of California? I know we have a lot of innovation hub, right? Silicon Valley, of course, you know, and then LA is also another one. And San Diego. So do you think it is an advantage or disadvantage in terms of where San Diego is located in comparison to other top cities or regions that are very attractive for the venture capitalists? I don't know whether location is the key thing, but I think what San Diego needs to do is to differentiate itself from anywhere else, Silicon Valley or otherwise kind of thing. You have to make sure your profile is up there, your visibility is up there, and then differentiate yourself. And we can. We are about as disruptive a region as any. And what do I mean by that? We develop technologies at the intersections of what exists today probably better than any other region in the country, right? Silicon Valley is known for a thing, and it is really good at that. But it doesn't then develop around the edges of that as well as, as other places. Boston, very good at a thing, you know, the life sciences. But it also doesn't. Whereas if you look at San Diego, we are known now nationally as probably one of the best places developing at the intersection of health and data or health and engineering kind of stuff. 
So we work in those spaces between the sort of traditional established sectors to create new sectors. And I can see other things coming along in the metaverse and blockchain and other things which are going to totally disrupt a whole bunch of other sectors as well. And that's how San Diego needs to differentiate itself. If you want to invest in today's technologies, fine, go somewhere else. If you want to invest in tomorrow's technologies, come to San Diego, right? So that's where I think San Diego needs to be positioning itself more. And this isn't pie in the sky either. I mean, in a couple of weeks, I have the CTOs from, you know, Ford and Delta and, and Pfizer and all these people all coming together here to spend three days with us to learn about the metaverse. And why does Ford and Delta need to learn about the metaverse, right? I have no idea. But what I do know is if we get this right, San Diego should be the place producing the talent and the ideas that are going to facilitate what Ford and Delta and Pfizer and all these places need. And so that's how we're going to differentiate ourselves. So at Oceanside, we emphasize on this multi-generation, cross-generation learning, right? So given your experience, I'm very curious when you look at entrepreneur of the past, current and future. Do you think there is an evolution of things are different? Of course, there will be something stay the same. Could you elaborate your understanding of that? Well, I mean, everything that we do and the programs that I'm responsible for, all of that programming is delivered by practitioners, not by faculty, no offense to them, but it's people who are actually doing it now. It's entrepreneurs and attorneys and investors and all those come in, they deliver all of this content. The same as what you do as well here, Helen. So we have a lot to learn from the people who have been before, but they also have a lot to learn from you guys, the next generation, if you like, of entrepreneurs, because the way each next generation or new generation thinks about things is different. I think things are speeding up. I think things are more fluid and more flexible than they ever have been before. I think people are less tolerant of being slow. So there's a lot of things to learn from the next generation coming through. But I think that next generation, if it's smart, which it is, also should recognize there's a lot to learn from the past generation as well. And that's how we do things. Our learnings are on two levels. What the people out there already can come and teach us but then maybe more importantly, what you can learn from each other. And the one way that we do that is every time we get a group of students who go through the program and start to go out the other side and graduate from our program, right? We ask them to come back in and teach the next ones to keep that sort of circular, pay it forward, peer learning thing going. And that is equally as valuable as learning from the existing practitioners. I think it's very important that you have this flow of ideas and communication between the generations. Yeah. Absolutely. Does the university support students' ventures whose primary market is not in the U.S.? That's an interesting question. I mean, I would say the answer is yes, but have I actually ever seen that? I guess where I've seen it is that we would have a foreign students whose intent was to develop the thing and bring it back to their own countries, wherever they came from. Do we support that? Of course. Yes, absolutely. Do you think the large company has the same potential for innovation when compared to startups? Again, it's a little bit apples and oranges, right? The innovative capacity of a startup is entirely different from that of a large company. That does not mean that the large company is less innovative. It means it innovates in different ways. So it could innovate the supply chain. It could innovate its marketing. It could innovate a lot of other things. Is it going to be as good at innovating in early research? More often than not, no, but that's where the startups are more innovative, right? But are they going to innovate the supply chain? No, they don't have the ability to affect it. So 
it's a little bit again it's the apples and oranges things right when you need both and and they're different yeah there's a plenty of problem to solve there's plenty of opportunities to grab right so we need a both the small venture yeah. as well as a large corporation to keep going with innovation yeah. kudos to all the students here wonderful questions the next yes. question is about a company culture so what different characteristic of company culture do you think are most important to instill with a firm, a team, to breed innovation and creation? It depends on the stage of company. For a startup, you need very flexible, risk-taking, creative people in a startup, right, who are willing to do just about anything. And I was CEO, I took the trash out, right? That's what you do in a startup. So you need that kind of a person and you need diversity within the team and all that kind of stuff. So that's the kind of culture you're going to have to have in, the, in that kind of a company. As you grow, it's different. If you're a pharmaceutical company, you need a very disciplined regiment structure to enable you to do clinical development of therapeutics, for example, right? So it's going to be in, in entirely different. So it depends on the company, I, I would say. But if you're in a startup, you have to be comfortable being uncomfortable on so many different levels. What does it take to effectively raise money for startups? How do you raise money? Well, you have to have a good story. You have to be able to tell your story well. People don't understand the value of communication and storytelling. If you can't look somebody in the eye and convince them that they should talk to you more, you know, and you can't do that in 20 seconds, you're dead in the water. So you have to have a good story. You have to be able to tell it well. You have to have done your homework. It can't be just that you have a good idea. You must have a good idea that people want. And you must be able to back that up. You have to go out there and talk to people. The people you think want it may not be the people who want it at all, or they may want it, but they may want it in a different way. So you have to have those. You also need to be able to listen. You're not going to raise money if you're a bad listener. Hear what the investors are telling you. Don't be arrogant to the extent of leaving a bad meeting with an investor and blaming it on the investor. Hear what you heard and learn from it. The most important characteristic of an entrepreneur is learn from failure. A bad investor meeting, of which I have had hundreds, teach you a lot, right? Apart from the fact of having a thick skin, you, you learn a lot from that. So those are the kinds of things that I think you have to have, and then you will raise the money. Good ideas, good stories with good teams around them will raise money. When the students as an entrepreneur, there's anything you would advise students to increase the success of pitch? investor i suppose because students lack of experiences and all that right yeah so one build your team if you go into a room with an investor with a recognized serial entrepreneur you can imagine the chances of success are so much greater than if you go in without that person right so build your team it doesn't mean every team has to have this whiz bang entrepreneur but at least be willing to go out and build an advisory board who are committed enough to come along with you when they're needed to go out and raise money. And meet people, learn the opportunities. This is one of the best things of San Diego. The opportunities to go out and network and talk to people at every level are enormous. There's an event every night of the week in this town. And there isn't any, you need to be in the club to get into the event. You just show up, print a couple of business cards and show up. Get yourself known, get your name out there. And that'll go a long way to when you then have to go back and knock on their door asking for money, right? Wonderful. So Paul, do you have a last thoughts to share with our audience today? Well, first of all, you know, it's fantastic that you guys are all here. If you are really interested in this stuff, get involved. Come to the basement, which is the big undergraduate program. Go to events. Build your network, network, network. You really can't overemphasize it. It's never too early to do that. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. So, Paul, thank you so much for meeting with our students and sharing your vision and insight for the innovation ecosystem. 
We have learned so much from this conversation, and I hope you enjoy the chat. I did. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thanks for inviting me, and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Oceanside Chat. We hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you liked it, please share this podcast and stay tuned for our next episode. We'll see you later.